This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to yet another in our series, Desiring the Kingdom. It is, I'm going to say that it is the penultimate episode of Desiring the Kingdom. We have this week and one more week, um, and then the series will come to an end. So hopefully you all have understood the the arc, followed the arc of the series, which has been that we have watched one human king after another go down the rabbit hole of failure. (laughs) (laughs) And we've seen the contrast between that and the heavenly king who will never fail us. Um, At any rate, it's been been a good series in that regard. Uh, But as we've moved from the kings into the prophets, we've been looking for these last few weeks at the prophet Elijah and now the prophet Elisha. Um, that's been interesting also because mm-hmm. watching the interplay, Sam, of the prophets with the kings, um, I really you, – you've you said this a number of times when we've talked topically about things. You have said there's a lack of prophetic voices today that mm-hmm. are speaking the truth to power. I totally, totally agree with that. Yeah. So as we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 6 in this very first verse, you see kind of a hint of a cultural shift where – there seems to be, you know, a budding revival among the prophets. Um, and so Elijah, who fell all alone, if you remember going all the way back to First Kings chapter 17, when we got into the prophet Elijah, it was like, you know, he's all alone. Who else is standing up? And now Elisha seems to have kind of a movement mm-hmm. going. And that's, that's kind of fun to see. God is beginning to to make an impact through his people mm-hmm. being faithful and God works through them. Elisha is uh you know I I always felt like Elijah was something of a hero of mine because of his his brashness and mm-hmm. his uh, willingness to confront anybody. Like you know if the Lord needed a gunslinger send the prophet mm-hmm. Elijah. Um but as we've been looking at Elisha Elisha has this kind of so I would call it like a downbeat, meaning that just kind of like a quiet strength. He's like, mm-hmm. he's not a guy that's going to make a big to do. And yet in his own quiet way, he's like rock solid. It's like, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's all about the Lord. It's all about accomplishing the Lord's mission, giving people the word of the Lord. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to be the focal point. He doesn't want to be out front. And yet he is just this backstop of you can, you can rely on Elisha to bring you the word of the Lord and to get out of the mm-hmm. way. Uh, and that's been really impressive. It was impressive last week with Naaman. The thing that I was really struck so much with in last week's story was how when Naaman came with all the money looking to buy his healing, Elisha sent a note. <laughs> 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 and when he came back after the Lord had healed him to give testimony to that and to, and to give glory to God, right? Mm-hmm. Elisha mm-hmm. came out to hear that. You keep mentioning Elisha's humility, and I love that because I think that it really does shine through him. Where you know Elijah, you think of him as the gunslinger, and he go he walking through the the road of the town, and at every window and door, it's like he's looking around, and everybody's against him. With Elisha, 
you see him because he's been discipled by Elijah, and now you just get the sense Elisha's like, no, 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 I'm going to let you experience the Lord working through you. And that's been one of the things in all of these stories. When Elisha does a miracle, he invites the people to participate in it. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, when it, when the water comes, he's like, you go dig the ditch to receive it. You go do this. You go do this to receive it. It's like he lets the people play out some task to be part of the miracle so that they can understand that God will work through them if they abide in the word of God. Yeah. Well, let's look at the first of those this week. This is in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It reads, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. His school had grown, right? Yeah, you think about the difference from the days of Elijah. Elijah's like, I can't find one. And now, <laughs> and now Elisha's like, all right, we need to undergo some kind of a uh, building campaign so we That's can it. get a bigger school. Let's get some brochures printed up for the mustard seed program. <laughs> we need we need more classrooms. We're That's ready right. to go. You know. So you see God's faithfulness, right? Yeah. These yeah. guys are coming out of the woodwork. And so the sons of the prophets continue. They say, let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he, Elisha, answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. <laughs> so he went with them. And they, when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now, obviously, the very first thing we have to say is iron doesn't float unless there's enough iron <laughs> to displace, you know, the water. Like boats <laughs> that are made from iron float because they're shaped in a way that floats, but axe heads don't float. So <laughs> this was a miracle, right? Yeah, a total miracle. It, it, it turns everything on its head, which, which kind of follows with all the stuff that Elisha has done. He does – and he turns the world's way of doing things on its head. He's 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 made he's brought life to death. He's brought freedom from captivity. He's he's turned every the world's way of doing things on its head. And so here, when iron floats, it doesn't make sense. You know, it sounds like an absolute like if you're coming to this with scientific lenses, this is utterly absurd. But it's meant to be utterly absurd because God is revealing us, revealing something. You know, God is able to take the world's way of doing things and perceiving things and turning it on its head. Um, and one of the things that this story does, if you go back um, all the way to when Moses leads the people out of Israel. So right after they cross through the Red Sea, they get done crossing the Red Sea. They sing the song of Moses. The very next story is very familiar to this. It says that they had left Egypt, they're out in the wilderness of Shur, and now they're walking three days. This is Moses and all the Israelites out of Egypt, and they go three days without water, mm -hmm. which sounds familiar, right? This is like the, the miracle where Elisha tells them to dig ditches. Mm -hmm. And so they can't drink water. They finally get to this place called Mara, and it's water in the distance. And you can imagine three days without water, like what are your options? If you turn around and go back, you're going to die because you're not going to make it six days without water. And your hope is somewhere in the distance, maybe there's more water, but who knows? And so they all like grumble against Moses and they're like, oh, we're going to die. And what does Moses do? It's it's almost 
well, it's pretty identical to what Elisha commands here. As it says, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. It's translated log, but the word there is tree. Mm-hmm. And so he cuts it down, throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet. Mm. Now, <laughs> you, you throw a tree in bitter waters, it doesn't make it sweet. So again, there's a miracle there. But what it's trying to show you is here you have people that are going out into the wilderness and they come across water, but they find out that this water only brings more death. Mm. And so what does God do? He's going to teach them something. He finds this one living thing out in the middle of the wilderness in a land of utter barrenness where there's nothing but death. He finds this one source of life and he cuts it down and he throws the tree into these waters which is, if you remember from countless other times, waters are emblematic of death and judgment. Mm -hmm. And so the living thing is thrown down into the picture of death and judgment, and all of a sudden, the bitter waters that bring death are transformed and bring life to everyone. It's a picture of the gospel after three days, hint, hint, hint. And so in the story that we're reading about now, it's incidentally – now, this is a a Sam – Okay. <laughs> Sam thought. So okay. be with me. Yep. Hang with me. But you have these guys that go down to the Jordan and they're cutting down trees. Now, if if you know Bible, what does that make you think of? They're at the Jordan River right near the water and axes are cutting down trees. John the Baptist, when he has his ministry at the Jordan, when he is preaching a, a, the message of repentance and wrath, what does he say? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mm. And so the axe, particularly here right next to the waters of the Jordan, the axe is the picture of judgment. It is at the root of the tree ready to cut down, and all of a sudden this axe head flies off into the water and it sinks to the bottom. And so what happens? Again, living thing cut down a tree. It's not a stick. That's another bad translation. It's a tree cut down, thrown into the waters, and now the iron axe head, the the picture of judgment, floats. And it makes me wonder, you know, in the first miracle with Moses, where the bitter waters become sweet, that, you know, God brings life to everybody from these bitter waters because this tree, this one living thing in a land of death was cut down and thrown in. And here you have this axe head, which is the emblem of judgment all through the prophets, even into the New Testament. Now the axe head comes to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, it's lifted. Hmm. And Elisha's, you know, he's the son of Shaphat, which literally in, in Hebrew means judgment. It's God is lifting up judgment. And the next story that we're going to read about right immediately after this is God doing something you don't expect him to, to do. Mm-hmm. He lifts clear judgment upon his enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, but that's that's where I go with it. I never, whenever I come across a miracle that seems like a parlor trick, <laughs> you know, that's like David Blaine, look mm-hmm. at the iron mm-hmm. axe head floating. God doesn't just, at least in my experience, God doesn't just do things like that because they're cool. Oh, look at this neat miracle. I'm going to make an axe head float so that you don't have to tell the person you borrowed it from that you lost it. Right. Like there's a meaning behind it. Yeah. He's he's preaching a message here. I had, uh, you know, and my take on it was very similar to what you just said, but I sort of found it interesting that it was an axe head. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it was a borrowed axe head. So the significance of that to me was that at that time, implements, tools that were made from metal. If you had a good quality axe, that was a valuable tool. Mm-hmm. It, it took, you know, somebody that was, a, if it was made from iron, if it was good quality, if it was sharp, you know, that was something that was valuable. So if this man had borrowed uh, an axe and lost the axe head, he would be responsible for that debt. So there was a debt that was in, would, would have been incurred. He would have been put under judgment mm-hmm. for losing the axe head. And that was expensive, probably more than a son of the prophet had floating around in his couch cushions <laughs> uh, kind of thing. And so I looked at it. And I, by the way, I agree with you that um, I don't think it was like a little stick. Uh, you know, this idea is the word means tree, timber. Yeah. Um, and I'm so this idea is that the tree was pushed into the water. And as I was looking at it, I said, and then it, it eliminated it paid the debt. It eliminated the debt. It removed the judgment, and the axe head floated up. Yeah, something and something living had to die to make that possible. Yes. So yes. I mean, there is like a little bit of a gospel allegory there in is. that story. That's that's kind of cool. By the way, in the Hebrew, that word that stick mm-hmm. most often is translated tree. You know, it's 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 something that there are no throwaway miracles. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like you say. If it looks like a parlor trick. Yeah, you know, look, I think you take another look at it and mm-hmm. and try to understand what what is God showing us here? What's this a picture of? So So then the next thing that comes up is actually a really famous if you've been around church and Sunday school and Bible teachers for any time, you've heard this story told. I know I've heard it many times where people have made reference to it or or preached a sermon actually on it, but but if not, just at least made reference to it. Um, so it's a pretty it's a pretty famous story. Um, beginning in verse eight, it tells us once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, "At such and such a place shall be my camp." But the man of God, Elisha, <laughs> sent word to the king of Israel, "Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there." And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. I've been hacked! And he, <laughs> and he called his servants and said to them, Which of you is the leaker? Will you yeah. not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I want to stop right there just because that's, we have our subterfuge. We, we think that we, we think that we hide things with it. You know, the Lord knows the words that you speak in your bedroom, your most intimate plans, your most intimate thoughts. Mm-hmm. You can lie to me. You can even lie to yourself, but you can't lie to God. Yeah. Does that creep you out at all? That used to be, I, I remember one of the verses when I was first coming to faith. And I guess I've gotten probably callous to it. But anyway, it still bothered David. But anyway, one of the verses was, your sin will find you out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, nothing is hidden from the Lord. That was one of David's things in Psalm 139 where he's like, where can I go to hide from you? <laughs> if I go down to the depths of Sheol, you were there. Like anywhere I can think of, you're going to be able to see what I'm doing. And, you know, in one sense, that's terrifying because you never get a moment's privacy from God. Yeah. And at the same time, that's 
unbelievably comfortable. Like it's comforting, I should say. And he sees everything. He knows everything. There's no thought hidden from him. There's nothing you do, nothing you say that's hidden from him. And yet his love and affection is still set on you. And there's no chance that he's taken his eye off of you, that he's going to miss a moment Mm -hmm. where you wonder if God took his eye off the ball. Like there's never a moment where you're out of his focus. He's that um, dedicated and devoted to you. Mm -hmm. It's, It's pretty wonderful. To answer your question, does that creep you out at all? Uh, no, no, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. It's a two-part answer. The first part is that when I was a young man, I had a habit of acting in a way that I thought would probably force someone to have a particular opinion of me, uh, meaning that I really wanted people to like me, but I was afraid they wouldn't like me. So I would act in kind of outrageous ways or in extreme ways so that I kind of knew what reaction they were going to have to me. In my head, I would say to myself, well, if you just knew the real me, you would like me. Hmm. Okay, so that's number one. That's the first part of the story. Now, second part of the story is let's fast forward a few years. Now I've calmed down. I've gotten married. I'm the church elder. I'm a guy that that – you know, teaches Sunday school and people start to know me a little bit around the church. Um, people will come up to me and say the really the nicest things to me and they're trying to express some gratitude for something like and they give you this this statement that makes you a little uncomfortable because I think, oh wow, if you guys knew the real me <laughs> you might not be quite so quick to say, Hey, God's mighty hand is on you. I'm like you know, I mean I'm I'm always grateful for the fact that God seems to work through me despite mm-hmm. me despite my weaknesses and deficiencies. So there's two sides of the same coin. You know, there was a time when I I used it as a comfort, like, well, if you really knew me, you would like me, but I'm just acting like a jerk to make you not like me so I don't have to risk it. And and then other times when people give you, would give me a compliment, I would feel like, oh, wow, uh, it's good you don't know the real me because, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. And so the fact that those two things have been a part of my brain chemistry um, means that when I think about the fact that God absolutely knows me, I'm like, okay, and yet still he says these things about me. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to love you. Okay, he really knows me. Mm-hmm. He knows awesome. the highs, the lows, everything in between. So for me at least, I'm kind of glad to be able to say, you know, and sometimes my prayers, to, you know, when I pray about something, especially confessionally, my prayer begins this way. Lord, you know I can't lie to you, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and then that's it. You just you you feel free to pour out your heart. There's no point in there's no point in lying to God. Mm-hmm. There's no point in 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 beating around the bush. And people are like, "Oh, I don't want to have to confess to the Lord. I don't want to have to confess that." I'm like, you, you, he already knows. <laughs> he knows. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that kind of. Thing. And I think one of the things that used to bother me about it not not to jump on this point too much, but one of the things that used to bother me about it and still does occasionally is I will find myself putting on a show for approval of people and mm-hmm. hiding, you know, sin or thoughts or whatever. And then I'll find myself like, you know, God knows everything. I won't alter my behavior for his sake, but I'll alter my behavior for the approval of men because I know he knows everything. Right. But I think to myself, man, if people knew, I would change. Yeah. And it shows like, good grief, am I really that flippant toward God? It's it's like a heavy weight. Mm. That's what I mean. Like he knows everything mm. 
and I'm sometimes still so stubborn in my sin that I'm content where if somebody saw you know that behavior that you know whatever the argument with a, my wife or right. whatever it might be right you know I would I would be mortified yeah but I'm callous in yeah. front of a god who sees all that's what I'm and I think everybody can probably relate to that I, hopefully yeah, I can obviously I can <laughs> you know but that's what I mean like it's you can't escape it you know he's he's always there and we should <laughs> never lose that sensitivity but also right. walk with the confidence of knowing that he sees it all and loves us anyway, because yeah. he's that good. So the king of Syria, confronted with the knowledge that uh, that uh, God has a uh, camera in his bedroom, <clears throat> and he said, go and see where he is, talking about Elisha, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, like in force, like go out there and it says, and they came by night, this force was big enough, they surrounded the city. <laughs> so in the morning, the citizens of Dothan wake up and find out that the Syrian army has surrounded the city, and somebody out there saying, send out Elisha, you know? <laughs> so word gets to the servant, Elisha's servant, says, when the, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> yeah, you remember, I mean, this is just a chapter ago, the last time horses and chariots surrounded Elisha's house, they were begging for healing. Yep. And Elisha sends the servant out, right? You're like, here, you go talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wonder if that servant's like, uh, please don't do to me what you did to Kazi. I'd rather not go out and talk with them. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things in my in my Mark Lautenschlager what if machine, yes. like I'm thinking through, here comes the army of Syria. Who is the commander of the army of Syria? I was about to say, do you think Naaman was in charge? I don't think I don't think so. Yeah. I think Naaman like changed career or something because I can't imagine if he was so absolutely in love with the Lord that he he's asking for the dirt of Israel to take right. back to Syria. I can't imagine either this is out of chronology, which is possible, or there's got to be a new commander by this yeah. point because I can't imagine Naaman leading them. And I think that if Naaman was there, if this is if this is chronological, and and we do have to mention to people because I think this is the first time we've actually mentioned that, but um, a lot of these things that are in Kings and Chronicles and and uh, books like this that contain history, we know that some of these things are told mm -hmm. out of order. That one book will tell you story one, story two, story three, and the other book will tell you story one, story three, story two, and mm -hmm. so you have to kind of know that and piece it together from other stuff from context. Yeah. And it's not hiding it. They do it thematically. In the ancient world, when they would write these narratives, they would write based on themes that they were trying to point out. The chronology was less less important. And they do right. that in in all ancient literature. Yeah. It was it was written largely by theme. So, but if it is chronological, I would think that if Naaman was in charge, they would have said Naaman. Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously Naaman is a big part of Elisha's story now. So I agree with you. I think that uh, either this happened, like you say, out of sequence and Naaman had not yet been healed, mm -hmm. or that more likely, I think that Naaman found a new job. Mm -hmm. you know? But the thing about this, and this is one of the things that jumps out in this chapter multiple times, is the last time. I mean, it's, it's kind of inviting your mind to imagine, okay, horses and chariots are surrounding the house now in even greater force. Right, but surrounding the, last time, the city. <laughs> yeah. The last time they came for Elisha, it was for healing. And you know what? Like, 
the Lord healed, showed mercy, had yep. compassion for free. Yep. And now the very same army under maybe a different commander is now surrounding him again and they want his blood. Yep. And it shows you how fickle society and nations are with the Lord. It's really fascinating and you're going to see more of that in this chapter as well. Yeah. Although what we're going to see is that the Lord is again going to be merciful. I, mm-hmm. Spoiler, I always do this to people. Stay with us. We're going to get through it here. But then uh, right after that mercy, guess what? They come right back again. Yeah. I know. Uh, so verse 16, Elisha answers the servant. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Uh, and I do think that, you know, Pastor Tom on Sunday when he was preaching this sermon talked about how <laughs> at that point that the servant of God was like, um, little eye strain, I know, did you get hit in the head? Uh, I'm just, you know, I, I know the vision, you've been reading the scrolls, your eyes are getting a little weak, you know, maybe we need to get them checked. Um, so yeah, I, I have a feeling that right about that time, the servant's jaw hit the ground because like he'd seen the army, right? So that would have been just terrifying. Yeah. But that's one of my favorite songs is, and it comes from the Psalms, but I lift mine eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? Right. Like that idea. And you, Lord of the Rings, it's like you're overwhelmed. The battle seems to be going against you and you're looking to the hills waiting for the backup to arrive, you know, reinforcements. And to know that there is this spiritual element that if, if you could see spiritually what the Lord is doing and all of his schemes that – are sovereignly going to come to pass. If you could see what he was up to, right. you would be greatly comforted, even in the worst of situations. So then what happens in verse 17 is, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And like you say, that's looking into the spiritual realm. He's able to see that the Lord is there to protect Elisha. And of course, when you, if I were to stop right there, you're, you're thinking, awesome. This is going to be like Mark <laughs> Carmel, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the next verse is going to be, and the Syrians, you know, they twitched and all of a sudden fire fell down on it. And that's not what happens. If I be a man of God, that's what you're yes. expecting. Here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. So uh, where's Elijah when you need him? Anyway, verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against him, so the Syrians moved against him. Elisha prayed to the Lord and he didn't say, all right, loose the, loose the fire. <laughs> he said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Verse 19, and Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And that was another, here's another thing that Pastor Tom pointed out on Sunday, which I'd never really thought about, but when he, when he mentioned it in the sermon, Sam, it, it was so obvious to me. I'm like, how did this never occur to me before? Hmm. When I heard blindness, I thought he struck him with blindness. And what Pastor Tom was saying is this doesn't mean they couldn't see anything. There was, there was some kind of delusion going on here because, because if you think about it, if suddenly this army was struck blind, they could see nothing. Mm-hmm. 
And then this disembodied voice was going, nope, wrong city. (laughs) Follow my voice and I'll take you to where the guy is. It was 10 to 12 miles between Mm -hmm. Dothan and Samaria. That's a long time for a big army to move, not being able to see anything, following a disembodied voice. I don't think they would have moved had they not. No way. You know. Uh, You think about an army. Let's go to war. We're all blind. Like, they're going to be looking to run for the hills, not find, you know, anybody that's going to risk conflict. So yeah. the, so the Lord basically hit them with tranquilizer darts of some yeah. kind where they're like, cool, yeah. man. This we'll is the you. first. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, now we know where George Lucas got the idea. <clears throat> uh, these are not – this is not the prophet you are looking for. <laughs> so they follow Elisha into the midst of Samaria, verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Um, I'm going to assume this is probably still Jehoram. Mm-hmm. Uh, because once again, what we see here is Jehoram, all, every time we've encountered Jehoram, there's this sense that he's, I want to say he's like young, he's impressionable. It's like, mm-hmm. he's just this guy like, what do I do? You yeah. know, what do I do? Yeah. This uh, is the second born of Ahab. Yeah. So, so he's, he's a mess. Yeah. He's, he's the younger one. And he's always, like you said, he always feels like the naive wet behind the ears, you know, what, what now? Yeah. So that's what he asks Elisha. What now? And Elisha answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? You know, why would you treat them different than any other prisoners you'd captured? Mm-hmm. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel for one period. Like, no, just this mm-hmm. period at the end of the sentence. That's It lasts <laughs> about that long. Um, you know, it's interesting because obviously he fed them and sent them back to, you know, to their back home to Syria. And you have to think, okay, the Lord knows what's going to come next. Mm -hmm. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the Syrians are going to get back home and go, did that really happen? I'm not saying anything about you, you, you go tell the king that we were led into the middle of Samaria and they fed us and sent us home. You go tell the king that. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. I'm thinking this is a situation kind of like you had with Ahab after Mount Carmel mm-hmm. when they got back to town and Jezebel no doubt said, what happened up there? And Ahab did not say, well, the prophets <laughs> of Baal could not get anything to happen. And then Elisha and the fire and oh my goodness. And the Lord God showed he was the true God. And then we struck down those false. No, he just said the Elisha, Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. You know, and then Jezebel's after Elijah. I have a feeling. I just mm-hmm. this is just you know Mark Lautenschlager's. This is Mark projecting himself into the scene again. If this had happened to me and I got back to Samaria or Syria and they said, "What happened to you? Where is Elisha?" I'd be looked all over, couldn't find him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this would be pretty embarrassing. Yeah. You know, one of the things in this story that bugged me a long time is if you look at the similarities between this and 1 Kings chapter 20, mm-hmm. they're really pretty startling. Like if you remember, 1 Kings chapter 20 is when God gives Ben-Hadad, who is the king over Syria, and all of his armies into the hands of Ahab. 
And rather than striking them down, Ahab comes out and wants to like befriend them. Oh, brother. Yeah. You know, and he does all this stuff. And God is furious with Ahab for that. And he says to Ahab, because you've done this, you will give your life. And, and it's like this judgment that falls on Ahab for showing this naive mercy. And God had called on him to, to take the Syrians and to have this decisive victory for the sake of Israel. Mm-hmm. So now you have the same king over Syria. It's, it's still Ben Hadad. And now he's coming after Ahab's secondborn son. He, er, he's coming, I'm sorry, he's coming after Elisha. He brings all the armies, all the chariots, the Lord gives them into the hand. And now when Ahab's son says, do you want me to strike them down? Elisha says, you shall not strike them down. And I thought to myself, like, why in the world does God change his mind? I Like, I don't get it. Like, in one sense, he's upset with Ahab for not executing justice. And then over here, you have Elisha saying, would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and your bow? And I'm trying to think. What's the difference? And I can only come up with one major difference. In the first attack where Ahab botches it, they're coming after to plunder, to kill people, to take wives, to take children. Mm-hmm. And God says, I'm not having that. I will my, – my wrath is boiling. I want justice. But the primary difference between that story and this story is this time they come after the man who is the agent of the word of God. Mm-hmm. They're only coming after one man. And Elisha, being the man who is, you know, the, the primary source of the word of God in this culture, does what? They were coming after me. They wanted to take my life. Not Israel, not wives, not daughters, not sons. They wanted my life. And so what's my response going to be? I'm going to lead them to my people and I want you to feed them. Mm. And that's the only thing I can think. Like the difference mm. there is here you have somebody who is, you know, the, the, the representative of the word of God, Jesus, right? Jesus is the word made flesh. When you attack Jesus' people, you'll see him get angry. You'll see him in the temple courts, flipping over tables. You'll see him get angry. But when you come for him, what does he do? This is my body. This is my blood, right? Take this and eat. And he seeks to win his enemies as friends. And I think the difference, because it's kind of a jarring difference, is because of that. This is this is pointing our minds to the true word of God, that when he's attacked, he seeks to make transform his enemies into friends. So he looks at Ahab and says, you know, my wrath boils against you because you didn't protect my people, the vulnerable and the innocent. But when Elisha is personally attacked and they're only coming for him, he says, give them food, mm-hmm. feed them, give them bread, give them water. Mm-hmm. Let's reconcile. Mm-hmm. And that's just a, a good picture of what Jesus will do for us. Mm-hmm. It's Anyway, just a passing thought. But the question was bugging me. Why the difference? Yeah. I think that's it. Hmm. Yeah, it, it may well be. That's good. That's a good take on it. Um, okay. So as we said, the the time of peace between Israel and Syria – didn't even last as long as Sam and I took talking about what just happened there. Uh, verse 24, it says, Afterward, like right next, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a 
cob of dove's dung for five Yummy. shekels of silver. You know, that is – okay, that's interesting because the the textual the, – the study Bible notes that I have on this told me that at that time, five shekels of silver represented on average about six months' wages for the average worker. So, you know – they're they're talking about six months worth of wage to get like half a liter of of dove poop. It's awful. It's just you know I mean what they are you know what where they find themselves in this situation is unbelievable, but it gets worse. The the one thing that I wondered here just just in thinking this through because now this is talking about a great siege on the capital city of Samaria. Mm-hmm. Where the last verse, 23, it said they did not come again on raids into the land of Israel, like raids where they took um, the servant girl, Naaman's Naaman's servant girl. So it makes me wonder if there's a difference between like plundering raids versus we're coming to conquer you as a people. Um, Clearly there was in Ben-Hadad's mind. (laughs) (laughs) But this siege warfare was brutal. And so what we're invited to see, first off, there's this great famine in Samaria. So supplies are already limited. There's no food. Things are not good. And to top it off, they're setting siege to the city, which means there's no way in or out. There's no more crops coming in. There's no more supply lines coming in from other places. There's no water. Like – Everything, whatever water's in the cistern, we've got to hold on to, like because it's it's going to be hard to get anything, and so the prices soar because there's no supply at all. Things are desperate; they're starving in the city. Um, it, this is this is rough times. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, it's about to get rougher. <clears throat> Verse twenty six. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Which, you know, now this is, it was obviously it was a sarcastic response from mm-hmm. the king. It, it certainly speaks of helplessness. When I first read this, Sam, I thought the king is being a little snarky. You know, because mm-hmm. if anybody's got food, if anybody's got drink, the king does. Mm-hmm. But I think we're what we, what we see here in, in just a minute after the, when the king, you know, tears his clothing. I think that the king has was pretty distressed at this point. I think that he'd reached a point of serious distress. He this this was a time when Jehoram was not being a jerk, mm-hmm. um, and so he's he's feeling frustrated. How you know mm-hmm. if God's not helping you, how am I supposed to help you? And then the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she tells a horrible story. She said, Mm -hmm. this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Cannibalism. Mm -hmm. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden your son. And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. First of all, this is an, a horrifying story, this idea mm-hmm. that, that this had reached the point where mothers were, were turning to the idea of human sacrifice and cannibalism of their own children. 
in mm. order to survive. So this is a, an incredibly desperate scene, and yet I still find myself absolutely appalled at it. I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I don't care how hungry you are. How do you do that? You know, um, it's 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 absolutely shocking. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 28, when Moses is talking about what will happen when the people turn away from the Lord, it's Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 52. Listen to these words because it's prophetic. You know, 600 years later, this will come into reality in the days of Elisha. But Moses writes the word of the Lord: They shall besiege you. And all your towns, until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, Mm. in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And so this, in a sense, is a fulfillment of what God had warned them the desperation of mankind would reach this level of wickedness if they turn away from the Lord because you can't find anything that satisfies. Hmm. And at this point, the people's dignity of life is, I'd rather die than eat my kids. How, how can you get to a place where you would not rather starve to death yeah. than eat your children? And yet they had become so dehumanized and walking away from the Lord and living just for the pleasures of this world, that they reached that point. Um, this is an unbelievable, like it's it's an appalling story in Scripture. It one is. one of the worst. And it is also, as you said, it's a sign of how far they had gone from the Lord. Because mm-hmm. we know just from our own reading in Second Kings how seriously the Lord took this idea of child sacrifice because of that, uh, the, the siege against the Moabites, right? Mm-hmm. When the Moabite king sacrificed his own son, that was the end of the siege. Mm-hmm. Israel was having no more of it at that point. They bugged out of there um, because there's no bones about it. The Lord is against this kind of thing in the strongest possible term. I mean, to the point that if you know, I mean, what he said, if you know somebody did it and you do nothing about it, you have a blind eye, I'm mm-hmm. cutting you off. Yeah, my wrath will burn on you. Yeah. So there's, there's no question here as to you know, did God, was this okay with God? The answer is no, it was not okay with God. Um, and it is a sign, a, a very, you know, horrific sign of just exactly how far the people of God had gone from mm-hmm. God, that children were now considered throwaway, food, disposable. It's crazy. Awful. And the king, in this case, had sackcloth on, uh, under his clothes against his body. Now, sackcloth was what? Sackcloth is this really scratchy material that you would wear. It was a sign of repentance. So you took off all nobility. And usually if you hear this, you're, you're repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And so the idea is the dust of the earth or the ashes were signifying death and sackcloth was kind of signifying poverty. It's the loss of everything precious. And so you would wear this. As a means of saying, and you'd throw dust on your head like, I deserve death. I, you know, I'm shamed. I'm, I'm under the dust Mm. and I am utterly poor. I have nothing to offer here is the idea. So if the king was wearing sackcloth, what would that mean? That means I, I, one, I'm 
I'm in need of assistance. We're in dire straits and I have nothing to offer mm-hmm. that we're entirely dependent upon something outside of me. Yeah. But you'll see here that while he has sackcloth beneath his body, his anger is raging against God yeah. and the prophet of the Lord. Yeah. Yes, and it tells us that in verse 31. And he said, this is the king, Jehoram, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So right there, he's blaming Elisha and by extension, God. For what's going on. And I think that to some extent, let's just say the the circumstances in which Israel finds itself are circumstances which the Lord has allowed to be afflicted on them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is judgment from God for how wicked they were. So he's not and wrong. In his, right. in his attitude of God is doing this, he's, he's not wrong. His response is wrong, but he's not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that that just hit me, you know, as we're going through this, is you have this king, and the king over his people is coming, and he's sincerely asking the question, probably frustrated, probably at his wit's end, but he looks at this woman and says, how shall I help you from the threshing floor or from the wine press? And I want you to stop for a moment, because I wonder if this is intentionally done, because you have a king saying, what, well, what do you produce out of a threshing floor? Well, you get wheat to make bread. What do you get from a wine press? You get wine, obviously. And so here you have a story where the king is saying, how can I help you? I have no bread to offer you. I have no wine Mm. to offer you. And what had these people reduced themselves to? They had reduced themselves to devouring her son. Yeah. Put all that together. And what, does, what is the greater king going to do? What is, what is God going to do? He's going to give us a king who lays down his life. He's going to give us his own son who comes in the desperation of our hearts and the fallen nature of our world. And this king says, you know, I, I am the bread. I am the wine. Devour, feast upon me. Mm-hmm. The Son of God, let me fill you. And so in all the ways that we look to this story and we're horrified at the the cost of it, the indignity of it, here's God, God the Father, who looks at us and says, I'll give you my son, the bread of life, blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Like how – and to think this is the king who goes to that very God who loves them that much that he would offer that up. Mm-hmm. And the king is attacking God as though you don't care for me. You know, on yeah. this side of the cross, we get to see just how much God loves us. Yeah. You know, that he would willingly give his son for us mm-hmm. so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good, so that we can be satisfied in our souls by receiving such an intense love and salvation from our God. That's good. Let me uh, let's let's go ahead and pick up the the ending here, just so we know how the chapter ends. But I'll warn you, folks, uh, you don't get any answers. <laughs> yeah, this is a bad cliffhanger. This is a cliffhanger. Uh, verse thirty two. It tells us Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, "Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him." 
is not the sound of his master's feet behind him, which that's an, an mm. unusual phrasing of a question. But what it really what they're really what he's really saying there is just keep the messenger out of here and let's wait for the king to arrive. The king's right behind him. So let's let's not let's keep the door closed until the king shows up. Because um, then in verse 33, it says, and while he was still speaking with them, the elders here. Um, now, the ESV says the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I really don't believe it was the messenger. I think it was the king who came down and said that because mm-hmm. the king was the one that was angry. at God. And, and the messenger, the captain, the servant of the king, would not have taken it upon himself yeah. to make that kind of pronouncement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, And you're like, well, Mark, it says the messenger. Not in the Hebrew, it doesn't. It doesn't say anything in the Hebrew. There's no pronoun there. There's nothing. So it's it's inferred as to what it is. And the folks with the ESV have decided it's the messenger. You know, the New King James, King James, New International, they all feel like it's the king. And I kind of agree with that. Um, but so and and that's where we stop. Um, <laughs> now, it does continue next week. But for right now, we've got the king and the messenger standing outside the door and they're looking to separate Elijah's head from his shoulders. Yeah. I mean, it's just wild to see, you know, this chapter starts in a place that Ahab and Elijah never <laughs> never had. Like Ahab didn't receive counsel from Elijah. They were – he wanted to kill Elijah. Jezebel yeah. in particular wanted yeah. to kill him. And, and this chapter starts – with Elisha, what is Elisha doing? He is constantly informing the king. He is saving yep. the nation again and again. He's doing all these wonderful things for Jehoram. He has led the Syrians into the hands of the Israelites. He has single-handedly been God's instrument in a lot of ways to bring about blessing and preservation to Israel. And it takes one, one moment where he goes from you know calling him father – you remember King Jehoram is calling Elisha father earlier in this chapter to now he's saying, I want to kill you because things didn't go my way. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, you know, th- this is why Jesus says, you know, that Jerusalem is the city that that stones the prophets and kills those that are sent to her. Man, when the prophet brings the good word. When the Lord acts on behalf and pours out his blessings, the the prophets and the people of God are tolerated. Mm -hmm. But when they have a hard word, when the prophet or even the son of God comes with an unpopular message, the people turn on a dime and want his head. It's, it's, you know, that's an indictment of all of our hearts. You know, we, we love the gifts maybe more than the giver. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a sad commentary because we, the Lord loves us with everything He's got, and we're awfully quick to go to well, what have you done for me lately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not much, <laughs> not as much daylight between us and Jehoram as I would like there to be. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, um, well, that's the note that we have to end on because that's how the chapter ends. Um, this was. I, I'm not sure, Sam, that I can think of another passage, that chapter in Scripture that has this kind of cliffhanger. And we should point out for people not familiar with how chapters and verses got in there that that's not how they were written. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter, you know, these were written as just it would just it would have just gone right on into the next thing because you know because verse one of chapter seven starts with but Elisha said um, so you know the chapter and verse divisions were things that were added much 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 later and they were done 
basically as a convenience so that we could all find the same place in the scriptures to read them together um, for reference sake. So these are like, it's an index. Somebody put it. It's not like the person writing this went, verse 33, come back next week. <laughs> I'm very glad for chapters and verses because back then it was scrolls. Can you imagine somebody say, go about five sixteenths of the way through the scroll? <laughs> You'd be like, wait, what? Well, no, they would sit down and expect you to listen to them read the entire scroll, That's I suspect. True. You know, yeah. it's like, what What else do you have to do? Sit down and hear the word of the Lord. We'll be here for a while. Did you bring a sandwich? <laughs> um, that's why the people would often get hungry during these things because they'd be there all day. Uh, but it is, it, it does, it is a cliffhanger. And that's, uh, that's where we have to kind of leave you, um, till next week. But this was, uh, this chapter was, was interesting because it went from something that to me seemed kind of, um, kind of medium, like like it started off with the story of a miracle that had some cool symbolism in it, but it was just kind of one of those things, sort of like, dare I say, everyday miracle. I realize that's an oxymoron, but it was kind of just like, like, hey, the sons of the prophets doing their thing with Elisha, and he did his thing, and oh, hey, that was interesting. And then it went into something that was kind of amazing. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, the Lord revealed the spiritual protection around Elisha and Elisha demonstrated tremendous power of God and then mercy and all these other. And then we kind of end with this siege and everything. And it's, I didn't really know how to feel reading this chapter. I went from, Oh, to wow, to, Oh, uh, in the same chapter. Last night, Laura and I were having a conversation. Laura's my wife. We were having a conversation about this chapter and she pointed out something that I thought was pretty, pretty cool. She's like, you know, Elisha takes the the servant out and he allows him to see all these chariots of fire arrayed around him. You know, we are more than them. Yeah. But the thing that she said is if even if you didn't have spiritual eyes, you would have had no idea because they never strike anyone down. They never do anything that seems otherworldly. Right. You know, everyone else would be like, you know, the, the idiots should just march to Samaria. Like, you <laughs> know, there's true. no clear indication that God's army was there. They didn't, you know, call down fire. They didn't slay the entire army. They were just there and given blindness and steering them where they were supposed to go. Or Elisha even did that. And so she was like, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, there was no clear, obvious presence there. And yet they were responsible for Elisha's ability to do that. Mm-hmm. I wonder how often that happens in our life. Sure. You know, how many times God brings me deliverance by blinding an enemy or, you know, just steering a situation. And, you know, the conclusion that we reach is all the time, I bet. Oh, yeah. You know, if we could just have those eyes to be able to open up and to see what Christ has purchased for us, the realities of the victories all around us. That the way that, you know, it's like Tom said in a sermon, we've got all these forces that are arrayed against the church of God, and they're not no small thing. Right. But when you imagine, okay, the world has all these. You have the Lord. Which side do you want? (laughs) Which side are you betting on? I would say the world is outnumbered. I don't like their odds. Yeah. It's it's a no-brainer. We need to walk in that confidence. Yeah. Well, that's a much better note to end on. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. We, we, need to get, we need to have her be our ending word more often. That was pretty good. <laughs> that is where we'll end this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it has been profitable for you. As always, we do invite you to correspond with us. If you'd like to send us an email or about something that you've heard, a question, a comment you'd like to make, our email address is outofwater 
at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, and on our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for both iPhone and Android and an app store near you. Sam and I will be back next week with 2 Kings chapter 7 and the conclusion of Desiring the Kingdom. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.